Welcome to the Groningen Feminist Network podcast. For anyone who doesn't know us, we are a community-led network of like-minded people, inclusive of all gender identities, sexualities, races, religions, ethnicities, education, class, and abilities. The GFN meets every Wednesday evening at 8 o'clock at Jimmy's to create a safe space for discussion. Our monthly podcast episode goes more in-depth about a topic we've discussed in the meetings. At GFN, we expect everyone to be respectful of each other and give each other the benefit of the doubt. That said, if you think we said something wrong, leave us a comment. Have fun! Hello. Um, the way we do this normally is we just go around, we introduce ourselves, name, pronouns. Um, maybe you could also tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, my name is George. My pronouns are they, them. I'm A, he, him. I'm Clem. Uh, my pronouns are her, she. My name is Natalie, and my pronoun is her, she is. Alright, so we first want to start off with a little bit, uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, we have a general question, uh, general question, so this year's Lustrum event was uh, centered around the themes of diversity and inclusivity. What do those terms mean to you? Oh, <laughs> um, <coughs> those are funny terms. Um, well, they're interesting terms. They're very corporate terms. Um, they're terms that work very well for getting funding. Uh, they're also very hollow, very empty terms. Um, I believe that the last, uh, the person who closed out the conference yesterday hit it on the nose, but I think everybody touched on it a little bit. Um, would you like me to tell you why there's yes, all concepts? Um, inclusion, uh, diversity, because whew, it does not take power into account. So it's like, yay, let's have a potluck, and then you can bring chiraquiles, and you can bring, you know, Greek food, and you can bring Belgian food, and you can bring. Nah, it's, that's not the way it works. Um, people are racialized and people um, will also based on region and there's power that's attached to that. So diversity is not even, is not nearly enough. Also people usually limit diversity to the color of people's skins or people's sexual orientation on paper, etc., etc. but not necessarily to ideological diversity and to structural changes that will allow other folks, particularly the folks who remain undesirable, and by this I am talking specifically about folks who are primitivized, uh, either because they are poor. So basically, the folks who are poor are never able to ascend. So it's very much a tool of capitalism. It's 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 classic. Like they'll have um, like an all gender bathroom, but a sign below it that says um, only for paying customers. Uh, mm. That's diversity. Okay. Um, and then inclusion is really problematic because in order to be included into something, it is something that is already formed. Um, and unfortunately, those structures do not make room for everybody. So inclusion is bullshit because you have to break down the entire structure and build one anew, um, taking into account and perhaps um, amplifying the voices of those who were never included. So, so that's why. Um, and, and this was sort of a, a general theme. Absolutely everybody laughed about diversity and inclusion, um, and we all took, you know, a couple of, um, we all punched it in the face. Yeah. Um, but the title yeah. was necessary, though, mm -hmm. um, because from what I understand, uh, it, it, it's a fairly conservative university, as academia tends to be, um, so it was the way to actually get it yeah. to, mm -hmm. to, to get going, um, and then so we sneaked in under the rubric of diversity and inclusion. It was hilarious and very fun. Mm -hmm. yeah. And. What were your considerations uh, surrounding participating in the conference, growing together, celebrating diversity, and fostering inclusion? So when you already hear, like, the, like, well, it was a way of sneaking in, was that something you were, like, actively thinking about? Like, 
Well, I think we were all thinking about it independently. Um, <clears throat> the first night that we were here, we had a networking event. And after it, well, all the people who were going to be presenting, just so we could get, in, get to know each other, I don't know anybody. Um, and the first thing when we, when we started sort of having drinks after this more formal event, somebody just dared to say, does anybody know why we're here? And this person says, because I literally do not do diversity or inclusion, like, or, or what I do is rather try to like murder diversity and inclusion, like these concepts are so harmful. And we all started laughing. We're like, I have no idea what I'm here either, because I'm exactly like against. And I and I, I pitched a number of, of of different talks to see which one would work better for the conference. But I was but I was telling the organizer every single time, it's just they're all of the talks that I'm proposing critique the very title of the conference. Um, so I don't know how well received it's gonna be. And she didn't tell any of us that that's exactly what she was looking for. So when we all got here, we all thought that we were going to be the only one who was going to be controversial. And But the first night we realized, no, we were all here for the same reason. And that's finally when she told us sort of why we were here, which is actually to stir things up, to actually get things moving um, in the right direction, right? Um, to sort of stop the stagnation that is created by terms like diversity and inclusion and growing together and all these the cutification of justice. Mm -hmm. um, so, so that's that was a concern initially, but but it ended the first night. Yeah. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. Um, just I think it would be good for our listeners would be a bit of an explanation of certain terms that you use during your talks. Yes. So, uh, could you please explain just for like layperson's terms, uh, the difference between coloniality and colonialism? Yes. Let's do the that. do the listeners know what my talk was about? Yeah, maybe you want to talk about that. Or first. was it live streamed? I didn't even no, know. No, I don't. I don't okay. think it was. Um, all right. So my talk had a fancy title, but it basically was about the coloniality of gender um, and the afterlife of colonialism. Okay, because that is what coloniality is. Okay, so colonialism is a his, an historical, transhistorical, and transgeographical phenomenon. Right, phenomenon that happened in a lot of different places. Um, which is essentially, and for the most part, all of this varies, right? There's other types of invaders, but the, the majority of people associated with different kinds of European invaders going to different places in order to extract resources from those places, right? And colonialism looks a bit differently in different places. For instance, in the U.S., it's settler colonialism, which we don't have in the territories that were... Um, that were colonized by Spain. Um, it looks differently in Africa. It looks, looks differently in a number of places. It looks differently in the Middle East. Um, but it was basically, um, it, it, it was predominantly sort of an, an economic process, right? A process through which uh, Europe went to other places to extract capital, right? Um, to extract capital, and this means labor, this means natural resources, this means any number of things. Uh, now, colonialism, generally speaking, is a tremendously brutal process. We are usually not taught about this in school. And the reason that we are not taught accurate history of these genocides is, and we're not taught about it in Latin America, by the way, either, because I was just talking to y'all, and y'all mentioned that in Europe, for the most part, y'all focus on the fact that, uh, that you gave us so much. We do so as well. Um, and the reason for that is coloniality, okay? So colonialism is this particular historical process um, this phenomenon, then coloniality is the, the afterlife of colonialism. So what happens when colonialism ends, right? Because we did not, decolonization didn't actually happen. What happened was independence. So we kept all of the structures, and for me the most important ones that I, 
the, the ones that I work on are particularly the intangible structures, so the mind structures, so how we were taught to think, not about about ourselves and about others. Um, so that is coloniality, how, how these processes, how what we were taught uh, very much by force still lives on. And specifically, I work on how it structures the ways in which we know ourselves, specifically through gender. Mm -hmm. So that is what the coloniality of gender is, is basically how through these colonial structures we learn to see gender in a very particular way, and moreover, naturalize that type of same gender of gender, right? So, which is tremendously problematic because even though gender emerges in the sort of late 60s, but really sort of gets going in the 70s and 80s, um, everybody's like, oh no, it's a cultural construct. And yet it tends to become essentialized when we see somebody who does not do gender in the ways in which we do by saying, ooh, what are you, like from the 1500s? Oh, I think they like to say from the dark ages? The dark ages where? We didn't have dark ages in Latin America. What are you talking about? But anyway, so that's what I work through. Um, and to me, history is a very useful, I'm not an historian. Um, I do a little bit of, of everything. I love intellectual promiscuity and all sorts of promiscuity. Um, but, um, but for me, history is a tremendously useful tool to help us understand why we think about things the way we do and what, are the, con what the consequences of those are, but also the possibilities that are open to us by looking to what has happened. It doesn't just teach you what not to do. It also kind of gives you a bit of direction and offers you, expands the amounts of possibilities that there are for things to actually, for life to actually be livable. So, so yes, that was colonialism, that was coloniality, and then coloniality of gender is basically how we learn to think about gender because prior to the Spanish arrival, and I, I speak specifically to the uh, Latin American context or the, uh, the folks colonized by Spain, so New Spain. Um, specific to that was um, usually we, we attribute things like homophobia, heterosexism, we attribute a lot of different things to indigenous cultures. Um, but there's been a lot of folks, and coloniality of gender is not my term, it comes from this fabulous theorist um, whose name is Maria Lugones. Um, who builds on this other dude called Aníbal Quijano, who works on the coloniality of power, right? So she, she talks about coloniality of gender to say, okay, gender itself was a colonial introduction. Prior to, the, the, uh, prior to Spanish invasion, um, indigenous people did not think about themselves in that way, in the way that we think about ourselves right now. And usually we attribute sort of all of these backwards these primitive things like homophobia to indigenous peoples or indigenized people. Um, and so history is very useful because what history tells us is that prior to the European inv invasion, there were actually, the, the indigenous nations on the American continent actually thought about themselves in much different ways, particularly as it relates to sex and gender. Um, so we didn't, uh, well, we didn't, um, they didn't, and, and they all have their own sex gender systems, right? So, so you can't really generalize. Remember, they were nations. They did not identify themselves as indigenous people. They only found out that they were indigenous people when white folks came over and said, oh, look, brown people, let's call them Indians, because they thought they were in India, because on top of a rapist and a pedophile, Columbus was also a dumbass. Um, so anyway. <laughs> So um, <clears throat> so anyway, they come over and not only do they see, ooh, brown naked people, um, they also see certain things 
that they did not particularly enjoy because they did not do. So things like, for instance, um, things that we now know to be part of the, the sex gender desire system. Uh, she mentions three things, right? Maria Lugones, which are biological dimorphism, which is basically the idea that there are two sexes and only two sexes and that gender follows sex, right? That's already been problematized, but still, there are two. And they get to the Americas and they're like, oh fuck, is that a dude in a dress? It's like, no, that's not a dude in a dress, homie. That's actually another gender. They don't do two genders. Some, some nations did six, some nations did three, some nations did 12. There were lots of different sex gender systems and they weren't assigned on the basis of genitalia exclusively. Mm -hmm. um, so things like um, dreams were very important to certain nations, right? So if you had a dream and then it was interpreted collectively and da 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 da, all of these things, or um, your tool preference, your erotic preference mattered, your social preference mattered, did you like to hang out with these types of people or these types of people? What type of work do you like to do? Do you like to do weaving or do you like to do hunting? All of these things mattered and went into your gender configuration. And perhaps the most important one that's hardest to understand right now because gender is so individualized, it's like, oh, you do you, papi. Uh, you pick your own gender and nobody can tell you otherwise, which is fantastic. But the thing about it that is very hard to imagine is that these genders were assigned collectively usually. And for that reason, they were also very much cared for collectively. Okay, so it wasn't like, Hey y'all, I'm gonna be this. To, I'm gonna be this because this is who I am inside. It was. It involved a conversation. Okay, you like this. You like this. You like this. How about this gender for you? Of course, it's not exactly the way that it that it went. It was actually a very spiritual sort of situation. Um, and the Spanish couldn't handle it. They're like, "Fuck dudes in dresses," and they're doing it openly. And fuck, they have dudes like what they perceive to be regular dudes, cis dudes as husbands, and nobody's going ill. Um, and so they were they were very traumatized by that and you can see that in the archives because um, they were very open about like how weird out they were because they, they couldn't grasp it. So through colonialism and through something called gender side, they try to literally kill out additional genders in order to make these communities binary. Heterosexuality was also a big one, right? Which, which I just talked about, but we can parse them out. And then the one, an, another thing that really freaked them out was there was no patriarchy in a lot of nations. Some of them did actually favor uh, some genders over others, but in a lot of nations what they noticed was, okay, women might have a different uh, job than men, might have a different job than, say, Aquis. Um, they all might have different jobs, different spheres, different ways of socializing, different types of labor, but there's actually no power asymmetries like the men aren't better than the women, the women aren't necessarily better than the men, there's gods, there's, there's goddesses, um, the women tend to be the spiritual leaders, the Akis are indispensable to the community because they do the uh, undertaking and the caretaking around death, which is a, a tremendously important part of life. Um, so they all have these incredibly important parts in their communities and nobody is more important than anybody else. So through colonialism, through a lot of killing, renaming, regendering, a lot of processes that were tremendously brutal, they basically beat them into their own sex and gender system. Um, so what folks usually read as primitivity was actually coloniality. It's you asked us, you, well, you didn't ask it nicely, but you asked us to do this, and once we did, we did it so well, that now you, did, well, you changed your mind about what gender is, but we're still doing what you told us what you forced us to do and now we're the primitive people um, so it's it's always as though they're holding modernity 
in front of you, like dangling it like a little carrot, um, but you can never actually ascend to it. So that's tremendously problematic. And I completely went on a tangent when I told y'all to bring me back. <laughs> no, but it was very interesting, and I thought that it's good to place context of coloniality and colonialism, especially, as you say, you know, you're more familiar with the Latin American context. Yes. So that's why we just let you go on, because I yeah, think okay. it provided us with quite insightful context. Yeah, also no. for just the theory of coloniality yeah. of gender, like, now we understand that also. So, so it's, it's yeah. fantastic. And now just my other two terms, and then I will um, hand it over to George. Uh, my other two terms would be, could you explain to us a little uh, briefly the difference between, um, well, not the difference, but just what does epistemology and epistemicide? Absolutely. I'll start with episteme, because that's the basis of both of them. Epis episteme is knowledge. And epistemology is a system of knowledge, right? Yeah. It's all interrelated. So how we know the world, how we come to know the world, because everybody filters the world through the lens that they were given. Mm -hmm. um, and so that is that is an epistemology. It's, it's a way of looking at the world. So it's a cosmovision almost. Um, and then epistemicide, well, with the aside, is the killing of knowledge, the annihilation of knowledge. Um, most folks theorize it as a slow death. Uh, and a death that is often not fully, um, never fully achieved, uh, a process of killing that is never fully achieved. So, um, and it's it's very different, di uh, difficult to understand when it's happening because it is so slow. It moves at a glacial pace. So the majority of people don't actually realize that they're doing it. And the reason that it's never fully achieved is because if it were achieved, we couldn't talk about it because we wouldn't know that it's gone, right? Um, because often epistemicide is, is so overwhelming that it destroys absolutely every record, every record of, of other ways of thinking. And even if records exist, we're filtering them through the ways in which we know. So often it's impossible for us to grasp how this was written. That's why archival work is, is often so difficult um, because you have to read between the lines, you have to read within the document. So you have to put yourself where the person was when they, when they wrote it. When, who they wrote about, where they might have been when they wrote it. So it's a lot of interpretation, but it's also really wonderful because it, it, it allows you glimpses into different worlds. Thank you very much. Um, so yes, that's what those three guys are. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. Gosh, yeah. Coming into, I guess, then we have this terminology of epistemicide and, and gendercide and, and coloniality of gender. The topic of your conversation was actually the sort of language surrounding the, the concept of uh, travesti, transsexualis, and tra transgenderal. Mm -hmm. Sorry, I have no Spanish. Um, Don't worry about it. And how, like, there are direct translations for these words into, uh, you know, like, English, but we don't really... I don't think they are perceived in the same way because they come from different contexts. Mm -hmm. And then as Manu, who has been on our podcast a couple of times and was very involved in the uh, sort of Organization of Gloucester Men and uh, is the is it a host? Is that what it's called? The host of your uh, session, I guess. The moderator. The moderator. That's the word. Yeah. Ask then is like how does translation sort of impact this sort of idea of coloniality? And then I specifically came up with the question: How does translation then linguistically and culturally engage with a the construction of identity? So how does the, the construction of identity as, as trans or transgender differ from transgender? Mm -hmm. um, and travesti from, from transvestite or whatever um, it would be in English, and then it'd be coloniality in general. Well, here's my thing about translation. It's mm -hmm. not necessarily just terms that you're translating when you translate words, mm -hmm. and particularly with more words, 
well, with some words more than others, um, often what you're translating is an entire cosmic vision, and particularly defining things, that mm -hmm. becomes really troublesome. Literally my entire dissertation was about trying to define one word, specifically travesti, right? Right. And, and what the consequences were of the way in which travesti is often reduced right now. Um, so how does travesti come to be what it is? What is it? And then what does that allow to happen or not happen? Um, so I use travesti, transexual, and transgenero, um, but transexual and transgenero are direct translations into right. Spanish for right. transsexual and transgender. Right. Both are still um, in currency in Mexico. Uh, transgenero is the most recent one. Um, it really starts making making the rounds within within public discourse in the late two thousands. Um, transsexual really starts making the rounds and around the uh, the seventies and eighties, primarily yeah. through foreign folks um, yeah. who, who had started engaging medicalized technologies of gender, right? Yeah. And and we specifically get get them primarily from Brazil, right? Um, and then travesti, which is another one, which is the one that allows the other two to actually become recuperable by the states. So, so in other ways, that allows transgenero to actually be a subject of rights is travesti, because travesti is the black sheep of the family, okay? So what we have with travesti is, so it's, it's, an, entire, um, it's an entire trajectory, okay? So I'm going to obviate a bunch of it, but throughout time, what happens is is um, there's a number of associations that get linked to what we can call right now temporarily homosexuality, but it wasn't called back that back then. So basically to homoeroticism and also male assigned femininity, right? So they they emerge from the you know 15th century on, starting after the invaders. What starts happening is they start becoming as associated with different things. So first, as the sodomite, the, the figure of el sodomita or el sodomético, what happens is they become associated with sin because they are read through sin, right? It's el delito nefando, the, the, the sin that cannot be spoken of, okay? So it's associated with sin. Through sin, it becomes associated with crime, right? Because it's not just, just a sin, but it's also uh, legally a crime to, to engage in non-reproductive sexual behavior, which includes, but it's not reducible to uh, to uh, anal sex, right? Well, at least not male assigned, male assigned anal sex. It also includes male to female anal sex. It includes bestiality and a number of things. So it actually formally becomes um, a crime. Um, and then once it is decriminalized, the thing about that is, is it does not lose its criminality. And that's another important difference between criminalization and criminality. Criminalization is something you can go to jail for because it has been made into a crime. Criminality is when something sticks to something else and it is always thought of as criminal, whether it is engaging in criminalized behaviors or not. That is an, an, a good example of this is blackness. Blackness has had criminality suture to it. So this is why we get phenomenons like walking while black. Transness has had criminality sutured onto it, right? Walking while trans. Um, this is why we assume that some bodies are more likely to be more brutal or criminal than others. Um, so this is something that happens to this figure through its association with criminalization. So once it becomes decriminalized, it does not lose its criminality, right? Mm -hmm. And so it goes through the pederasta, still criminalized, doo -doo -doo -doo. and finally in the 70s with the uh, homosexual liberation movement, as it was called, um, what you get is it breaks up. Oh, well then it gets pathologized as the homosexual as well, but it's also still a, a criminalized entity, a, a proto-criminal entity. 
In other words, with a homosexual, they used to say, and I do use these word, this word specifically because it was called the homosexual at that time. And homosexual is not the same as gay. Homosexual is not the, is the same as gay. It's not the same as pederasta, not the same as solomita. Different words are different figures, okay? And so they meant different things to different people. So by the time that the homosexual, that the pathologized homosexual, which was supposed to be, um, homosexuality was supposed to be an indicator for crime. So if you were either afeminado, which was a stand-in for homosexuality, or, or actually enjoyed sex with other folks perceived as men, then you were more likely to engage in criminalized behavior. Okay, so anyway, so this pathologized homosexual eventually in the 70s with the liberation movement starts saying, okay, well, now we need to be a subject of rights. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We've been well, we've been decriminalized in 1870s. Um, we have been depathologized. So now what we need is to actually have rights. And so in order to do this, the, the Homosexual Liberation Front does it very strategically by saying we are virile men, we are masculine men, we are just like anybody else, we are not perverted, we are not weird, we are not criminal, and they focused on criminality a lot. We're not like those other ones, those locas, those jotas, the ones that dress like women. And here is where the figure of the travesti starts coming up, right? Because the virile homosexual, the, the homosexual who is trying to virilize himself, which who will soon thereafter become the gay, although not everybody will be accepted into gayness, right? Because it depends on cosmopolitanism, on ascendance to whiteness, on proximity um, to, to class privilege. Anyway, so this is when, when these homosexuals were trying to virilize themselves, draw a very clear line in between them and travestis, right? Who are, who are um, at this point in time, they're not men who dress as women, they're not, it's much more complicated than that. But to these feminized male bodies, right? So they're like, no, we're not like them, we are respectable, and they are not. And this is exactly the strategy that is, that is successful and how they're able to actually become respectable subjects. If it had stopped there, it would have been awesome, but unfortunately the trans movement currently is using a very similar strategy. Um, yes, read my dissertation and find out. Um, but, yes. Um, but what happens, um, what's happening, happening recently is um, a, a lot of trans discourse coming out, particularly trans rights discourse, um, that's coming out is basically, no, 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 we're respectable. We are transgender women. We have been women since forever. We have known since through we were a kid. The transformative discourse, like right? the, the transformative narrative. Uh -huh. But on top of that is, and we are hard workers and we love our family and we pay taxes. The responsible consumer citizen, right? Mm -hmm. And importantly, we do not engage in sex work and we just want rights and to be able to live nice and respectable lives. Mm -hmm. Not like those men in dresses who don't know what the fuck they want, they love doing sex work, and they steal, and they kill. I, I can understand that it's a, a very problematic discourse to have, mm -hmm. but um, I think for certain people in certain countries and certain communities, I guess, that's the only way they would know how to, I don't know, different, protect themselves or differentiate themselves is give you another scapegoat over there, look over there, and don't focus on me, I guess. I would agree. Mm -hmm. um, at first, a lot of things that are very strategic and that have the potential to be very problematic, I generally can say, let's use it for a little while, let's continue to be critical about it. The problem with these strategies, and the ones that scapegoat somebody else, never, ever, at all. 
-hmm. But the other ones that are that are relatively strategic, like when feminists came up with the sex gender model, right? Mm -hmm. It was supposed to be a strategy so that people could stop focusing on the natural and start focusing on the, the cultural and let's get some amount of freaking dignity and safety right now. It was supposed to be strategic. The problem with these strategies is that if they're actually very successful, people start buying into them, right? Yeah, and so they stop trying to complicate them, and so they actually end up renaturalizing them, even though initially it was strategically just meant to get safety for some people. Yeah. However, I do not believe that absolutely any movement that is based on getting safety for some people um, at the expense of the more marginalized people is a legitimate movement at all. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, I love the trans community. I'm part of the trans community in Mexico. Like, we're all there. The majority of people don't notice what's actually happening, right? And they actually believe this discourse that they are more legitimately gendered than other people because ah, they can just take off their dress if they want to, da da da, -da and these sorts of things. Um, so it becomes very problematic, and we need to continue being critical of our movements at every single, like every single step of the way, because otherwise that's how our movements become conservative when we stop listening to the shit that we're saying. So yeah. 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 So I think there's definitely like similar narratives of respectability. I'm thinking, for example, in, in, in the West of um, you know gay marriage, and I remember very soon having discourse in my middle school class uh, in Belgium of like, um, well, gay people are just like any other person because Ugh. we also just want to get married and have kids Ugh. and um, and like what, but like the, even there there was a discussion of well, a counter to that idea of, of respectability. So it was still an argument that existed, and that was not seen as, as like, was not entirely, I think, naturalized, if I'm using that word correctly, mm -hmm. by, I will say, people who all felt they were cis and straight in high school. Yeah. <laughs> uh, gosh, where was I going with this? But then I guess there's also something that's very specific, this was like, from this Western perspective, but also something very specific to then that the position of an, the travesti comes from a lot of impositions of, of uh, colonizers, mm -hmm. but also then comes from a history of being colonized, like from both sides. Mm -hmm. I don't really know where I'm going with this, but like, do you think that, because like, I guess like, how is this um, positioning, how does that become then the thing that is the travesty that doesn't really exist in the West as such, or in, in the North <laughs> as such? Ooh. So, okay, so it's very difficult to, to, to Travesti is not an indigenous figure. Yeah, no, I know, right? I'm not trying okay. to say oh, no. that, no, no, no. Because no. there are other figures, for instance, that are like Mushes. For instance, mm -hmm. that do trace their genealogy directly to the Zapotec uh, nation yeah, yeah, of yeah. the the Isthmus of the Huantepec. So, two spirit folks who are sort of can trace some sort of lineage, but are still sort of having to rework their identities based mm -hmm. on historical archives, right? And what is fantastic, particularly about the Chumash, is the willingness of the nations to actually engage in these processes that are collective, right? These gendering yeah. processes that are collective. Travesti has not attempted at all to actually connect. Now here's the thing, what I use in order to talk about this, um, and there, there's lots of folks who talk about it in different ways, about how epistemicide precisely, because it is never fully achieved, it keeps popping up in different places, usually in the communities that have non-legitimate, but probably closer ties to those trajectories. Okay, so in this case, I, I like to use the Mexico Profundo to talk about this, right? So there's this dude, Bonfil Batalla, who says there's two Mexicos. There's the imaginary Mexico and the deep Mexico. The imaginary Mexico is not imaginary because it doesn't exist, it very much exists, but it is the Mexico that imagines ourselves 
to be distanced from our actual cultural and economic conditions, right? Mm -hmm. The deep Mexico, Tuvanfirbataya, consists, yes, of indigenous communities, but also of, of de-indigenized, forcibly de-indigenized and juridically de-indigenized rural communities, as well as poor urban communities. And by de-indigenized, you mean? Oh, oh, oof. Oof. Okay, colonialism is ongoing. It is now being perpetrated by the Mexican state, mm -hmm. and it has been perpetrated by the Mexican state for a long time. In a, for a lot of times, these were actual wars, like for instance, the caste wars of the mid-19th century, okay? So we, because I am identified as a mestizo subject, uh, we have been trying to get rid of indigenous people since the Spanish left, okay? It has never stopped. Why? Because indigenous people are the legitimate um, owners of the land, it is of land and resources. They have the more legitimate claim, okay? So we go ahead and we invent this thing called Mestizaje where we say, hey, we're all a little bit indigenous, so we all have a little bit of claim to the land. And so, uh, much much like what is happening right now in Israel, but not, but not with the same background, um, we start pushing indigenous folks into tiny and tinier and tinier communities into worse and worse and worse and worse lands. Okay. Same thing happens in the US. Okay, and then, but we say we have no race because we're all the cosmic race, okay? Yeah. It's, it's a legal thing, isn't it? Well, initially, initially, the official discourse, there are no races in Mexico. Um, we are all the same race. We are the cosmic race, the mestizo race, okay? This is a Vasconcelian sort of thing. Although, nah, not really. Um, <laughs> but anyways, and, and this is the official discourse. And until 1992, when because indigenous folks are still there under worse conditions every single day, right? But in 1992, the state says, okay, well, maybe we will recognize indigenous people. So they, under the Second Amendment of the Constitution, they actually write out um, something that's very vague and kind of bullshitty, but it's eh, better than what we had before. So they say, Mexico is a pluricultural nation th that has its foundations in its originary nations, okay? So it writes that out. Nine years later, they amend it so that it abrogates itself. So they keep the second paragraph of before the second paragraph. They add, the Mexican nation is a unitary nation, and a single and unitary nation. You can't be single if then you're going to be pluricultural. You cannot. Mm -hmm. But that was obviously, um, that was in response to indigenous demands for sovereignty, which they don't have. Um, so, so basically it abrogates itself, boop, 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 and then in that amendment, they actually put out a list of how you can be indigenous. So you have to do this and this and this. You have to live in the same land as your ancestors, which is really, really hard to do when the government keeps moving you around and taking your lands. You have to keep your original government, and so basically they try to make them anachronic to, to, to prevent them from actually doing different things so that they can actually be read. As indigenous so juridically we've been de-indigenizing folks for a really long time and what ends up happening for instance um, because in these communities often there's not enough work there's a lot of migration out to urban centers so if you stay in the urban center then you lose your claim to indigeneity so it, make no mistake this is a process of de-indigenizing it is a process of genocide um, and so, but Bonfil Badea says, at, a, at any rate, these folks end up in these urban centers and they are the urban poor. And it's absolutely no coincidence that what we see, what we identify as indigen indigenous epistemologies, it's no surprise that they're popping up exactly among the people that we might have, that we might have taken indigeneity from. 
Okay, so so he says, okay, they keep coming up. Why? Because these episodes are never quite dead. And unfortunately, this, these are the spaces like travestismo is exclusive to precarious communities of dark-skinned people. Mm -hmm. Chacales, which are typically um, men who identify as straight, but who enjoy having sex um, with usually feminized men. Sound anything like what the Spanish found when they came along, and then they saw these men dressed as men with men mm. dressed as women. Yeah. They so, identify as straight. Yeah. They enjoy having, and but, but usually current discourse, all it allows us to do is say, oh, they're probably just closeted homosexuals. They're probably just, they probably have a lot of internalized homophobia, or maybe they have a different way of viewing mm. sexuality, right? So it, it, it disallows us to see those spaces as legitimate spaces. And we, unfortunately, we keep using time to the advantage of the Eurocenter, and the Eurocenter is not Europe. The Eurocenter is the Eurocentered way of thinking, okay? Thank you very much. We are you're very welcome. Well yeah. Yeah, um, I think we'd like to thank you very much for coming here. Yes. I think we have one um, quick, uh, more of a quick answer question yes. that uh, the GFN podcast usually asks. Yeah. Gosh, we have two options. You can pick one. Binary. Yeah. I, like I am it. so sorry. You can pick both if you like. Okay. Or something tangentially related. One of them is Feminist of the Month, because usually we're a monthly podcast. We've broadened this to be what is someone who, through their activist work or social engagement or feminist writings or etc. etc., has influenced you in the work that you're doing or generally in your life. The other thing we have is monthly faves, quotes again, and that's a piece of media, book, TV, podcast. Instagram account, YouTube channel, TV show that you want to recommend to our audience. Ooh, so this out of left field. Ooh, no, 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 not at all. So hard. I have so many intellectual crushes, um, <laughs> so many organizing crushes. Well, I mean, the most recent one is freaking Clarice from yesterday's conference because she's perfect. But um, that's like an actual, actual crush, but also a brain crush. <laughs> um, she's coming tonight. If we're hearing this, please, please don't be freaked out by me. Um, <laughs> she's coming to. No, she knows. I told her. I, oh, okay. I'm, I'm very transparent about my crushes. Um, it often makes people feel uncomfortable. Oh shit, Kimberly Crenshaw, because she was just here. I mean, see, I don't, I don't keep the intellectual to the intellectual. The intellectual invariably ends up like melting down to my genitalia. Um, and I get like actual crushes and brain crushes. Um, oof, just people are, there's so many wonderful folks of color, um, indigenous folks, third world folks, mm -hmm. producing so much fantastic knowledge. Um, oh. Well, how about uh, an author that you've really enjoyed reading that would educate, really educate the those of us who know nothing about uh, gender Talks identity? about this specifically? Yeah. Oh, then go for Maria Lugones. She's fantastic. <laughs> okay. Amazing. There's some stuff, you know, you can argue with her about, but uh, but she's, generally speaking, she's fantastic. Ooh, actually, you know what? Pedro y Pietro is doing fantastic work on the Andes and the decolonial imaginary. Oof. Emma Perez. There's so many. Just read okay. everyone. You're just gonna have to send. Thank me you all so things. much. Yes, just, read them them all. just read them all. The oh, Amaranta Gomez Regalado. Yes. Perfect. Excellent. Thank you so much. You're Thank welcome you. so much.